You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Hello, everyone. As, as it's been said already, it's great to see your faces. Um, preaching to masks has been a little bit difficult. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to see all of you here this morning. Um, We are going to be continuing our summer sermon series, which we've titled No Greater Love. For those of you who uh, didn't hear about it last week, this will be a series of shorter sermons. Again, you're welcome. All about love. The first half of the summer, we're going to be focusing on God's love. And then the second half of the summer, we're going to be highlighting how his love empowers us to respond to it and to be living reflections of it. So it'll be good. Simple, but good. Simple, but profound, right? Um, And specifically speaking today, we'll be receiving the much-needed and encouraging reminder that the God we worship, the God that we place our hope and our trust in, the God we were singing about earlier, is a God who loves us. A God who loves us. Better yet, that he is love. 1 John 4.16 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is probably one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture. Let's read it again. Just, Just receive what it says. 1 John 4.16, So we have come to know... And to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. If you were with us last week, you'll hopefully remember that we were encouraged to know and abide in the love of God, which he both revealed to us and freely offers to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So to abide in love is to abide in Jesus. Through his death and resurrection, we're freely invited and adopted by grace through faith to know and abide in his love and in his kingdom as God's children. This is the gospel, right? This is the good news of salvation and the fullness of the hope within us. But yet, something we didn't really ask or answer last week was why? Why Does God love me? What what would compel him to love me in this way? Or as Psalm 8 verse 4 asks, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? It's it's a poignant question to ask. Because if, if... If we as humans have truly abandoned and turned from him in our rebellion according to Genesis 2 and 3, if sin has really darkened the very corners and caverns of our hearts, if all we do is habitually distort the very idea of love into practicing selfish desires of the flesh, then why? Why would he still choose to love us to the point of taking our place and dying for our sin at the cross? 
What, what would motivate him to redeem us like this and to make us holy? Well, I, there are multiple answers to this question. Part of his motivation, I think, is that is because we are made in his image, and, and as such, he desires to see us restored back into it to become who we're truly meant to be as humans, as his image bearers. Another reason which motivates him, I think, is that he desires to be in relationship with humanity. He created humanity so that we can share in his love and in his glory. But ultimately, the main reason why God loves us is because of the very fact that he is love. God is love. And as 2 Timothy 2.13 reminds us, he cannot deny himself. God is love, and he cannot deny himself. Right? So his, his very nature, his very essence, his makeup is love. It's who he is. Therefore, he cannot do anything or act on anything apart from it. A.W. Tozer once noted, nothing God ever does or ever did or ever will do is separate from the love of God. So love is who he is, and that is why he loves. He cannot deny himself. He has to love. Even his other attributes, his, his compassion, his mercy, his forgiveness, his faithfulness, his slowness to anger, his perfect justice, and yes, even his righteous judgment, all stem from and even complement his love. In fact, all of those attributes that I just listed are revealed in synchronicity at the cross. Every single one of them, you see it at the cross. His justice, his love, his righteous judgment, his compassion, his slowness to anger, his mercy, his faithfulness are all there at the cross at the same time. Not only that, the whole universe was spoken into existence by his love. We were created and designed in his love to be loved by him and, of course, from that place to love him and to love one another. His love is even woven within the fabric of creation and, and all society. Right? We can see that. Every single culture has expressions and images of love. Though none of those images or expressions can compare to the greatness of God's love. The whole universe, in fact, was spoken into existence by his love. And, and so the truth is that, that pure and holy love cannot exist apart from him. True and holy love cannot exist apart from him. Because God is the source of all love. Love is from God. 1 John 4, 7-8 says, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So God is love. Every expression of selfless and holy love finds its source in him. 
And so this is why it's extremely good news that love came to us, right? That Jesus came to us, both so that we could experience it and so that we could walk in it. John 3.16, we all know this, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So just knowing this truth, God so loved the world, should fill us with both a sense of awe, but also relief. A sense of awe that he would do this for us. That should fill us with awe. That he would do this for us. But a sense of relief, because it's so unlike anything else. It's so unlike every other uh, relationship or religion or cult, including atheism, in which people so often have to strive uh, to find or earn the love or affirmation or validation or purpose of their chosen idol or God or their culture, right? Begging at the altar, trying to be good enough or good-looking enough or knowledgeable or intelligent enough or impressive enough just to be noticed, right? Hoping they can coerce or manipulate manipulate their God or their idol or their society in order to garner even a a tiny bit of attention or favor or satisfaction. But that's exhausting. Working and working and working and doing and doing and doing and never knowing if you're fully loved or accepted. Having to always earn that love that's, that's a defeating life. That's a prison of uncertainty. It's a burden that none of us were meant to bear. And it's also a mindset which often leads us to self-righteousness because we think we're super awesome with all the works we're doing, or it leads us to burnout, or it leads us to low self-worth because we can never measure up. And in some cases, it might cause us to act out in extreme ways when we, when we become desperate to be noticed or to prove our faith. Like in the days of Abraham and, and even in some cultures and cult-like religions up until recently, you could find kings, it was really common to find kings or religious leaders who would be so desperate to appease their gods or their idols that they'd even sacrifice their firstborn in order to gain the favor of, of false gods, false gods like Baal or Moloch. That's how, that's how desperate they were at times to gain favor and blessing. Can you believe that? that? That's evil. Unlike them, the God of the Bible doesn't demand such a thing from us. We don't have to beg him to affirm us or like us. We don't have to purchase our way into his grace or into his favor. We don't have to be perfect before he loves us or accepts us. We, and we don't have to prove our love or devotion to him before he notices us. In fact, he did the opposite. He became the perfect sacrifice and took the weight of our sins for us, for our behalf, so we would notice him. We don't have to make him notice us. We need to notice him. And so he made that happen. He set us free from our sin and spiritual blindness so that we, would, we can see him and so that we can be assured of the love he already had for us while we were even sinners. 
And if you read the Bible closely, you'll find that any sacrifices or gifts that God's people were commanded to make or, or do according to the law or according to Jesus' commands for his disciples, we'll find that they're only given for our sake as a way for us to know and enter into and respond to his unending and unconditional love. Bottom line, no sacrifice or good work can make God love us. No sacrifice or good work that we do can make God love us simply because he already does. He already does. And we don't have to earn the right to come before him to know that love because Jesus already did that for us. And so I'll say it again. We don't have to beg for or earn his love. It's always existed. His love has always existed before time, before the world even began. The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed in a state of love together. And he created humanity to join with him in that. In that state of love. That is incredible. He is love, and he wants us to know it. Therefore, we can be sure that he loves each one of us and accepts us and desires the best for us, since that's who he is, and he cannot deny himself. This, this truth, I think, is especially encouraging uh, for those of us who might feel rejected or unworthy of love, all right? especially for those of us who feel uh, unloved in society. Henry Nguyen writes, self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. God is love. He loves each and every one of you. And you can't disqualify yourself from that love. And sure, he might be disappointed or angered or saddened at times like he was with Israel and Judah, like we learn in the kids' story, right? Whenever we disobey him or turn from him. But still, our actions cannot negate who he is. We can't stop God from being who he is. Good or bad, our actions cannot change his very nature and his desire for us. No matter what we do, God is still love. And that's a good thing. Which is why scripture says we love only because he first loved us. Right? He loves us first. For example, uh, my, my two boys, my sons, they, they didn't do anything to earn my love or acceptance for them. In fact, I loved them and prayed for them before they were even born, when they were still fetuses. And of course, once they were born and I saw them for the first time, my love for them and my acceptance of them was permanently written on my heart for good. Any parent, any aunt and uncle, any grandparent, and you know, any, any friend of people with kids can relate to this, right? They simply exist, and I love them for it. 
They don't need to get good marks in school. They don't need to keep their room tidy for me to love them. But they still need to clean their room. (laughs) If they want their allowance. (sighs) Even when they make mistakes, right? Or, Or even when they're bad and I get disappointed in them. I don't stop loving them. Though I'll admit, I'm not always perfect at expressing this love to them because I make mistakes too. I'm not perfect as a father, but God is. God is. He's a perfect father. His love is perfect and it never wavers. His love is expressed even through abundant grace and generosity. Matthew 7, 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? My, again, my two sons, especially the oldest one, they, they love going to 7-Eleven. They love it. From their perspective, my love is truly evident to them when I let them go and pick out a treat or get a Slurpee. That's how they know I love them. (laughs) There's other reasons too. But the gifts mentioned in Matthew 7.11, this is how you're going to remember it every time you see 7.11 now. The gifts mentioned in Matthew 7.11 are even better than any gifts I could ever give my kids. The gifts God gives to his children are eternal and come from the abundance of perfect and unconditional love which he has for us. We just need to come before him in Jesus' name and ask. Henry Newman again writes, our true challenge is is to return to the center, to the heart, and to find there the gentle voice that speaks to us and affirms us in a way no human voice ever could. The basis of all ministry is the experience of God's unlimited and unlimiting acceptance of us as beloved children. An acceptance so full, so total and all-embracing that it sets us free from our compulsion to be seen, praised and admired, and frees us for Christ, who leads us on the road of service. There's no greater or more freeing love than the love of God. It's a love so full and accepting that we no longer have to look for it or desire it in others. A love so embracing and assuring that it empowers us and frees us from our pride or our low self-worth. It frees us from being consumed with our reputation or other people's opinions or acceptance of us. His love gives us confidence in who we are as God's children, as his beloved, so that we can get on with joyfully loving others and and being who God created us to be. As Joel Beek and Nick Thompson write, how seemingly insignificant the frowns of men appear when we are aware of the beaming countenance of our Heavenly Father on us. 
For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Oh, to have the favorable eyes of God on us. For in his favor is life itself. What could more steal our hearts in the face of criticism? What could better enable us to respond in God-fearing strength? Only his love. When it comes to the love of God, there's absolutely nothing that compares to it. There's nothing more generous and full of grace and acceptance than his love. It strengthens us, gives us resolute assurance in who we are, in our identity, in our self-worth, and knowing that no matter what, God's love remains. It is on us. It is on you. On that note, what does his love for us look like? Well, obviously, we're going to be exploring that this summer. But for this morning, let's be reminded of, of of how he reveals it to us, especially in the person of Jesus Christ and at the cross, where we see, as it explains to us in, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, his love, which is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Of course, this is, this is a popular passage for weddings. Something cheesy to say that no one remembers, right? <laughs> well, hopefully they remember it. But this, is, this, this passage is actually based on the very nature of God the Father. Which, again, was revealed in the life of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, this is how he loves us. He, how he loves you. As his children. His love is patient with us. It doesn't force us to love him first. Neither does it insist we become something better or different before he loves us. It's not envious or irritated or resentful of us. That is, he's not discontent with us. He's not longing for something or someone else. He desires you. And neither does his love rejoice in our sin or our mistakes. Instead, it rejoices in revealing the truth to us and in us while simultaneously bearing and humbly enduring our sin and our mistakes upon himself, which Jesus did at the cross, also that we can walk in his truth and in his love. And the best part is, his love never ends. It doesn't expire. And so nothing we do or don't do can change it. In fact, nothing can separate us from it once we're in it. We can never fall out of that love. It's enduring. It's, it's eternal. It's unfailing. A characteristic which we're going to learn more about next week. But again, for today, this is the good news. This is the good news. God's love isn't based on what we do or what we've done or what we promise him that we'll do. It's based on the fact that he is love and he wants us to know it. It's a perfect love. 
rooted in his very nature and revealed through the cross. It's a love which invites us to come before him just as we are. To come before him with confidence and without fear of punishment or shame or unworthiness. Even when we've sinned, even when we're feeling unworthy, even when we're feeling broken or guilty or ashamed, we can come before him knowing that because of his love, he'll be quick to forgive us and to restore us. As it says, love covers a multitude of sins. And so again, we can rest in and hope in and find relief in the knowledge that he loves us as we are. Though, of course, at the same time, and as we'll learn in the coming weeks, he also loves us so much that he won't leave us as we are. Because he, he loves us so much that, that he wants to reveal in us our full identity and purpose. He desires for us to grow in and walk in the way of his love. That's why he gave us Jesus. That's why he humbled himself for our sins at the cross. That's why he fills us with his spirit so that his love would abide in us. And all we have to do is come before him in faith in the name of Jesus in order to receive it in full. How incredible. How wonderful. This is love for us. And so let's meditate on this and and, and ponder with awe then the, the, the very idea that the God of the universe has woven his very nature of love into the world. And even better, that through Jesus and the seal of his Holy Spirit, this great and holy love has also been woven into our hearts and souls, that it abides in us, in you. And I want to conclude this morning with one of the most beautiful expressions from God's word, which describes the way God loves and delights in each one of us. It's from Zephaniah 3.17. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. God loves you so much that when he thinks about you, he rejoices with gladness and singing, loud singing. Think about that. The the God of the universe sings over you, over me. It sounds kind of cheesy, right? But yet it's also so so true and so mind-blowing. We always think of singing songs as something that we do for God. But in reality, our songs we sing, our our worship to him, it's it's only a a feeble response and, and reflection of the glorious and heartfelt love song which he sings over each and every one of us. There's no greater love than this. A love that's freely given. A love that came to us and invites us to come as we are. And an abiding love that sings over us. That we can rest in and find confidence and identity in. A love that's not only from God, but a love that is God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ. 
in whom you have shown your love to us, in, in whom you have revealed your love to us. And so, Lord, we, we come to you with confidence. We come to you with boldness by the blood of Jesus, by the mighty name of Jesus. And we ask that according to your nature, Lord, that you would help us to grow in your love, that you would help us to experience your love even more than we ever had, Lord. That you would fill us with the fullness of your love so that we may grow in the knowledge of who you are, so that we may grow in who you've called us to be, so that we may go forth as the church, as the body of Christ, as your children in love. Lord, I pray for those this morning that that are feeling unworthy of love that you would, you would remind them in the power of your spirit that, that that is a contradiction to how you actually feel about them, Lord, that you truly love them, that you desire the best for them. Lord, I pray for those who feel like they have to earn your love, that you would remind them that that's also a contradiction to the way you love us, that you love us first, that we don't have to earn it or beg for it, We just have to receive it in the name of Jesus. Lord God, ultimately, we we thank you with, with, with hearts of gratitude, with hearts of humility and awe that you would love us and that nothing we we could ever do take us away from that love. Lord, help us to truly know what that means. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts that, that, and in our minds that, that we would realize what that truly means. The God of the universe chooses to place his love within us, that we can abide in his love your love. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. I invite you now to respond with me as we come to the Lord's table and we receive communion together as the body of Christ. Psalm 51, 1 to 2. This is King David praying. He says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. Do you see how David prays here? He asks God to graciously blot out, blot out his rebellion, to completely wash away his guilt, and to cleanse his sin, not based on any, anything at all, except for who God is, according to who God is. He says to God, according to your faithful love and abundant compassion. He's saying, because you are love and you cannot deny yourself, 
please love me. That's his prayer. And, and this is why we're saved, right? Because God is love, and according to his nature, he answered David's prayer and, and, and the prayer and longing of all humanity by sending his one and only begotten son to pay the price for our sin, to make a way for us to be completely forgiven and cleansed of our guilt, also that we could know the love he's had for us all along. 